rise. That's a great Amen. song, isn't it? We will rise again when he calls our name. I love that song. Thank you, thank you, Bill. So if you have your Bible and want to turn to uh, John chapter 3, we're going to be talking about the fact that you must be born again. I got, I got on this topic because I was thinking about adoption. I was thinking about adoption in the Bible and what that means, and that kind of helped me to go back and see that there's another term that, that God uses as far as our relationship with him, and it's that we must be born again. So we're going to do being born again this week and, and what that means. And then next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll be talking about adoption, what it means to be adopted into God's family. So hopefully you've uh, got John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18 is what we're going to be talking about and what we're going to be reading here pretty soon. Uh, since we're in John chapter 3, I just kind of want to make an offer to the church. And uh, since, since COVID, it's been more and more difficult sometimes to have an outreach uh, to people. Uh, people are a little bit leery about people going door to door. Uh, I understand that. But I think there's still a way that we can do some outreach. And obviously, one of them is uh, the s'mores and more that we're going to be doing, where we're going to be outside and it'll be safe, where we can do things that way. Uh, but then also, I was thinking about ways that we can do Bible study with people. And uh, I was trying to explain this the other day, and I'm not sure I made myself real clear to the person I was speaking to, but each of us have a, a core group of people that we are around, and we probably don't wear masks or anything with them, right? <laughs> we have our core family. Maybe it's made up of our family. Maybe it's made up of our neighbors. Maybe it's made up of workers. Uh, if we could somehow work on reaching those groups, uh, maybe, with, uh, maybe with a Bible study in our home, I think that would be an awesome opportunity. And so uh, I've, maybe I mentioned this to you. I don't know if I've done it on Sunday or not, but I've certainly done it on our Wednesday night Bible studies. But one of the things we used to do in college, uh, when, when people were signing up for classes at University of Illinois, I don't know if you realize what a tremendous event that used to be before there were computers to do all of this. People had to actually come into the armory and they would get the information about their classes and they would fill out cards and then they would leave the armory and that is when we would pounce. <laughs> so they're coming out of the armory and uh, I was involved with a group called the Navigators and we would just be there ready with cards and uh, we would ask us kind of a survey of questions. We'd tell them we're taking a religious survey. Back then you could say that and it wouldn't scare people off. But uh, we would tell them we're taking a religious survey. And the last question would be, would you be willing to be in a three-week investigative Bible study on the claims of Christ? And of course, most people would say no. But we had probably hundreds that would say yes. And so in our dormitories, a few weeks later, we would get these cards, you know, based upon where we lived, and it was up to us to go and contact them and say, well, we're going to start this Bible study you signed up for on such and such a night. And so we got to spend three, at least three weeks uh, with them because we were doing first, second, and third chapters of John. And uh, so we would get to spend three weeks with probably unbelievers, maybe some people who had gone to church but no longer went to church, and go through those chapters, which you know, chapter one speaks about Jesus being the Son of God. Chapter two 
is the beginning of his miracles, turning the water into wine. And chapter three is you must be born again. And so we had the opportunity just by doing that study uh, to share the gospel, not just in one setting, but over multiple weeks with them. And it was a very effective way to at least get the gospel over in such a way that you knew that they understood it. Not everyone said yes, but a significant number of people did receive Christ at the end of those studies. And it's because they had time to think about it. They had time to have their answers, their questions answered. And so it, it was very effective. And I think something like that could work in Noble in the Olney area. Starting with our family, maybe starting with our family and saying, we're gonna do this for three weeks. Inviting some neighbors over, do it another three weeks. And I, I think it would be a very effective way to do it. So today we're going to, we get the opportunity of looking at chapter three of this. And if you are interested in doing some type of a study like that, all you would have to do is host, and I would be glad to come and lead, lead the Bible study. Or you can host and lead the Bible study both. It's, it's your choice. But today we get to read this story about Nicodemus and Jesus. And uh, as I was going through this, I was so thankful that I was born in the United States. <laughs> I was born in the United States where there is a plentiful amount of information about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, we have Bibles, we have multiple Bibles, we have radio stations, we have TVs where the gospel programs where the t where the gospel is shared. We have podcasts from seminaries where we can hear all about the Bible. We just have a wealth of information. But you know, I didn't choose. I didn't get to choose where I was going to be born, did I? I didn't get to. I I didn't even get to choose who my parents were. I could have had rotten parents, <laughs> but God gave me gracious parents. They were not. Um, always, I wouldn't say that I was brought up in a Christian home, although I think, I know my mom was, uh, came to Christ at a later age. But uh, I did have good, loving parents who taught me to be responsible and have some integrity and to be proud of our name. Uh, but I, I, did, I, wasn't, I didn't get to pick my parents. I didn't get to pick the place where I was going to be born. I didn't, I didn't get to pick my parents. I didn't get to pick the time when I was born. Have, we, have you ever thought about how fortunate it is that we were born at the time we were born? Uh, I was born in 1956, after World War II, after the Korean conflict. I'm not saying we didn't have challenges as I was growing up, but for the most part, the time of me growing up has been a time of prosperity and peace. Uh, and there have been wars, there's no doubt, but we've not felt the full impact of those in America, right? We've been isolated. Well, this kind of goes to the main point of our lesson today, is that we must be born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus in this conversation that we must be born again but it's not up to us how we were born spiritually earthly or spiritually so let's let's read the scripture and uh we'll get into it a little bit after that so let's go ahead and stand for the reading of god's scripture john chapter 3 verses 1 through 18 
And it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious section of scripture, one that's well known to us. Probably the best known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, is here and gives us words of encouragement that whosoever believes in Jesus will not be condemned but will have eternal life. And we're very thankful for that promise. We're also thankful for the promise of this work of the Holy Spirit helping us, doing the work for us in this process of what it means to be born again and Help us to understand that in all its significance for us. Be with us as we study this word. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this is obviously a well-known story, maybe one of the better-known stories in the Bible. But do we really understand its implications? When Jesus says you must be born again, do we really understand the spiritual significance of what he's trying to say? And so what we have here is an earthly illustration. He's talking about being born that illustrates a spiritual truth. And so he's using something that is earthly, something that people are very familiar with, which is the birth of a child. And he's using it to convey a spiritual truth. So this conversation obviously is between Jesus and a guy called Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Well, he was a very important person in Israel. It says in the scripture that he was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews. And so the Pharisees were one of really kind of three or four different sects 
uh, and I, that's the word S-E-C-T-S in Israel, and uh, that made up kind of the political realm of Israel. So there was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and there's one that I can't remember off the top of my head, but maybe it'll come to me. But uh, anyway, the, the ones that we know the, the most are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were very legalistic, uh, went very much by the law. Their doctrine actually was pretty much right on. They believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. Uh, the Pharisees believed in angels. The, the Sadducees did not believe in the angels. The Pharisees understood that there was an, an afterlife. The Sadducees were not too sure that there was an afterlife. And so they had a lot of things right, but they had become very legalistic. And by legalistic, I mean they were very much about working their way to heaven. They, they had to make sure that their whole life was strictly in accordance with the Mosaic law. And so when it said to, that you wear phylacteries on your head, they would wear phylacteries. If it said to wear tassels, they would make their tassels even longer. Uh, if they were to commanded to pray, they would pray in front of everybody and make sure everyone saw that they were praying. They had become very legalistic and as a result of that, they had become very prideful and arrogant, almost all of them. In fact, somebody, uh, John MacArthur also preached on this section of scripture last week, apparently because it showed up on my podcast. And he was saying out of about 6,000 of the Pharisees who uh, were in Jerusalem at this time, it was only Nicodemus who uh, during the life of Christ actually became a believer. Now we know Paul was a Pharisee as well, he became one later. But out of 6,000, it was only Nicodemus who probably had the courage to come to Jesus and ask him these questions. And he was a leader in Jerusalem, he was a ruler, I mentioned that. Being a ruler probably meant that he was on the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 people who made up kind of the ruling class uh, over the people of Israel and especially over the temple area. And so he was a part of that, uh, of those 70 people uh, who'd make major decisions. Uh, John MacArthur referred to them as being like the Supreme Court in the United States. They had the kind of the final say-so. This scripture that we read here today, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Did you notice that? So he was a master teacher. He was not just any other rabbi, but he was someone who was looked up to even amongst this group of 70 people. Now Nicodemus came to Jesus, but he came to him at night, didn't he? So this is somewhat different than what you might expect. And we're not really given the reason why he came at night possibly he came because he thought I'll be able to spend more time with Jesus this way the crowds won't be there but there's also the possibility he came because he didn't want his other Pharisee friends to know and to see that he had questions of Jesus all of the other Pharisees were against Jesus they had a bias against Jesus can we say that he had a bias they had a bias against Jesus they weren't really interested in what he said he just, they just knew that Jesus was upsetting the cart and causing trouble in what they considered to be important. And so it's very possible that he came under the cover of darkness 
not to be seen with Jesus and so lose credibility with his peers who in general stood in opposition to Jesus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and I'll, I'll have to say he is respectful and he is curious. And that's not a lot of, you know, we didn't see that a lot from uh, the Pharisees. He was at least respectful. He called him teacher, called him rabbi, said we know that you must come from God because no one does the miracles, the signs that you do unless God is with him. So he was re very respectful and he was curious. Now, one curious thing is that in this conversation starts, Jesus answers a question without being asked a question. Did you notice that? Verse two, verse three, Jesus answered him, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, lest one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this shows that Jesus knows exactly what is on his heart. He knows exactly what he's coming to ask about. Nicodemus is coming to ask about what does it take for one to enter into the kingdom of God. And he must have some sense that Jesus is not going to say it's following rules and regulations, but it's going to be that you must be born again. You must be born again. He keeps saying that. He says it in verse 3. Let me read that one more time. Truly, truly. I say to you, Jesus says this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this conversion uh, conversation starts out with this basic statement, you must be born again, again in order to see the kingdom of God. And so it's essential that one be born again. And the question obviously is going to be, well, how is one born again? What must I do to be born again? How do I... What are the steps I take to be born again? There are even books out there that you can buy that say, give you so many steps as to how to be born again. But if you buy one of those books and you read it and you believe that, you're really going against what Jesus says here because Jesus says there are no steps. This is a sovereign work of God. It is a sovereign work of God. You must be born again and it is a sovereign work of God, just like we did not have the opportunity to choose where we would be born, what time we would be born. Being born again is a sovereign work of God. Now, this term, born again, has many different uh, forms that it takes in Scripture. Okay, sometimes, obviously, here it's translated as being born again. The same words here elsewhere are translated being born from above. Sometimes it's referred to as a new creation. Being born again, new creation are all terms for the same thing. We know in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so born again, born from above, a new creation, are all terms for the same sovereign act of God. A new heart is another way of saying that you have been born again. A circumcised heart, often referred to in the, in the Old Testament, is the same thing that he's talking about as far as being born again. Let me read this all the way back from Deuteronomy 30, chapter, or 30 verse 6. 
This is a long time ago, and yet this is a prophecy of what would happen when Jesus came and said, you must be born again. It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's, it's the idea that God himself circumcises our heart. He cuts off that which is against him and gives us a new heart so that we will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. You see, in the Old Testament, it's proved over and over and over again through the people of Israel that rules and regulations never change the heart to a point to where they love him fully and, and wholeheartedly and devotedly. Time and time again, he showed them grace and mercy, and time and time again, they go back to their old ways. They even go to other gods. It's clear that just a given people a commandment to love and to obey is not enough. And so this verse is given to us. God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Another term is to be born of God. Another term for born again is that the heart is quickened or made alive. Another term for it is that the eyes of the blind are open. Remember in John chapter 9, there's a blind, blind man that Jesus heals and the Pharisees constantly coming to this man and even his parents and saying, you know, how, you know who healed this person? And the, finally, the, the blind man says, Jesus is the one who healed me. Why do you want to know? Do you want to become his disciples as well? And that's the last thing in the world that they want. And this whole story of the Pharisees and the blind man and them questioning him really is to point out their blindness. They are blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are blind to who this person is who has done all of these miracles and it's so plain to someone whose eyes are opened but it's so difficult to see for those who have this spiritual blindness and so at one time all of us right all of us here had this spiritual blindness we heard the gospel we knew that there was god and yet we resisted him we did not believe and trust in him another term for being born again is regeneration Titus 3.5, this sounds very familiar as well, but it says, speaking of Christ, it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, that's the Pharisaical way, but according to His own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so all of those terms, the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, go back to this idea of being born again. Here's a, here's a definition of the new birth, and this happens to be taken from the Baptist faith and message. So bear with me, and if you want a copy of this, uh, I'll be glad to post it on our website, but it's, it's, uh, it's in the little book that we hand out. Listen to this. Regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart underline that it's a change of heart wrought which means to be worked out by the holy spirit 
through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of God's grace. Let me say that one more time. Regeneration or the new birth, that's what we're talking about. You must be born again. It's a work of God's grace whereby believers become creatures in Christ Jesus, new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. And so we, we take all of this information that the scriptures have given us and we come up with this conclusion, which is the same one Jesus has. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't think this means that they cannot experience the kingdom of God. It means they cannot perceive, they cannot understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because they have not been born again. They have this spirit within them that is against God, that is bent away from him. And all of us have that at one time. We have this unwillingness to be able to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And so Nicodemus, he, he asked this question, how can one be born again? How can one go back into the mother once he is old and be born again? And of course, he's got it all wrong. He still hasn't made the connection that Jesus is using this earthly illustration to represent something that happens spiritually. And he asked, can, a, can he physically be born again? Can he just start over again? And the answer is no, of course. It's not about the physical. It's not about your out, outward works. It's about your heart. And so, no, that's not, a, it's not possible. Just starting over again by being good is not good enough. Just going to church is not good enough. Just giving money to the church or getting involved in ministry is not good enough. All these things are physical things, not dealing with the main problem, our wayward heart. You see, the question is, how do we get a new heart? How do we get a new heart when we don't want a new heart? It is impossible for someone to be saved by works alone. They must have a new heart, but they don't want a new heart. Does that make sense? How does a person get a new heart? It's given to them. It's given to them as an act of God's grace, as a gift. In fact, good works cannot help us see the kingdom of God, but will only obscure even more of the kingdom of God. This was the problem with the Pharisees. As they placed more and more faith in their works, the true quality that they needed was humility and the attitude of the publican who is willing to get down on his knees and say, forgive me, God, a sinner. But they didn't have that. As they did more and more works, thinking these works would save them and build up pride in their life, which, of course, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so we cannot be born again by our good works. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like the one who is unclean, 
and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We know that verse very well. All of our righteous works to try to gain God's favor are as filthy rags. We have a heart problem. This is the problem that the new birth solves. If you need more ammunition or evidence, I guess would be a better word to say that our hearts were bad. Let's look at a few verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through through, 1, 1 to 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked through the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we are not patients in a hospital that merely need to recuperate. We are people who are dead and must be resurrected. We must be resurrected. And in Ephesians chapter 2, I didn't write this down in our notes, but in verses 4, 5, and 6, the verses immediately following this, it speaks of our new relationship in Christ and how he has raised us up to the heavenly places. Spiritually, he raised us from the dead, right? Our, our spirit right now, those who are of us who are believers in Christ, are united with Christ. And in a sense, he is in heaven. That spiritual part of us is in heaven because we have been born anew. We have been raised from the dead. We have been resurrected. Amen. But the person who is not saved yet, doesn't understand that. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. You come to the gospel with someone, and you've done this with your families, and I can name people in your families that you have talked to, and it just goes over their head. Or they understand it, and they say, well, that's just not for me. They don't understand the gloriousness of the gospel. They don't understand what Jesus has done for them. They might understand it up here, but it has not moved to the heart yet because they have not been born again. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. This is speaking of people before they come to know Christ. The mind that is set on the flesh, the things of the world, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We are, as unbelievers, unable to accept the good news of Jesus Christ unless God intercedes on our behalf. Romans chapter 3, we've quoted this many times. I won't quote the whole section, but I'm going to quote verses 10 to 12 and then verse 18. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Listen to that. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Sinners are unable to believe in God because they are unwilling to believe in God. It's not as though God has reached down and said, I'm going to make this person unable to believe in God. They are unable because they are unwilling. That's the problem. Our will, our heart does not want to turn to God. 
What is needed is a spiritual rebirth of our hearts from God's word and the spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 5, going back to John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this may pose some issues with interpretation about what it means to be washed with the word of God. To me, it's not a problem at all, but some people see this as being baptism, that you must be baptized and you must be born of the spirit. I do not think that is referring to baptism. It is not referring to baptism. There are too many places in the scripture where we see people who are saved who had not been baptized. The thief on the cross was one. Jesus said, I will see you in paradise this very day. And he had no opportunity to be baptized. We believe that salvation is the faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. <laughs> By grace alone, right? It's a gift. And so nothing we can do, whether it's baptism or any other work of the law or, or circumcision, which was the case in the book of Galatians, none of that has anything to do with how we are saved. It's by grace alone. And being born of the Spirit is by grace alone. You must be born of the water and of the Spirit. Well, some people will say, well, being born of the water means to be physically born, but that doesn't make sense either. That doesn't make sense either. Jesus has already told him that it's not about physical birth, but it's about spiritual birth, being born of the water. And this is probably why Nicodemus should have known this and Jesus chastised them is because we find it, I think, in Ezekiel chapter 37. So I've got that in my Bible. Listen to what was prophesied probably six or seven hundred years before the time of Christ. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statute and be careful to obey my rules. That's 700 years and he's talking about being born again, right? He's saying that there was sprinkled clean water on you. I believe this refers to God's word. It refers to God's word. When we hear God's word and the Holy Spirit acts within our life, we will be born again. And so we must be washed by the word of God. We must be cleansed by that. I think Titus 3.1, I read that a little bit earlier, speaks about that as well. It says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. As the word of God is preached and as the spirit blows where he wants to blow, people are born again. It's a move of the spirit of God. Let's look at verses six and seven and eight see what jesus has to say about this that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit 
do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Once again, he's saying Nicodemus as a teacher, as the teacher of Israel, you should know this because it was explained to you in, in Ezekiel. In verse 8, this is how the Spirit causes people to be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, we have no control over the wind. We cannot say where the wind is going to go. It can change directions. It can blow harder. It can blow softer. All that is subject to God's will and not our will. And Jesus says to you know, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? He said, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He says, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you have not received our testimony. Jesus has only come and told them what the Old Testament said was going to happen. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus, at least, at least at this time, he's not making the connection. Verse 14, we began to get into the good news of what Jesus would do for us. He says, and Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is a prophecy of Jesus eventually being nailed to a cross and lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the, the new birth is solely made, by, made possible by God alone through his spirit. This is going to be an amazing statement for some of you, but it's true. You are not born again because you believe. You believe because you have been born again. Let me read that again. You are not born again because you believe. You believe because you have been born again. That's the right order. We see God being sovereign. We see his spirit blowing where it will. We see the word of God being preached. And we see that God gets all the glory for our salvation. He spoke about this earlier in John chapter 1. And this, this verse, I think, helps explain it extremely well. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Speaking about Jesus, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Did you notice that? Jesus came to the people of Israel, and they rejected him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born into God's family. That's why we call ourselves a family, because we're born of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13. This tells us a lot. Who were born, not of blood, it's not a physical relation. It's not a physical relationship type of, of birth, right? It's not an earthly birth. 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. We are born of God. It's not our doing. It's not our doing. We merely agree with it by expressing our faith. Faith is an important part of our salvation. If you look at conversion, you see that being born again is the first part of that. The, the next part is that we must believe that every person who is born again will believe. So let's look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Wonderful verse. It shows God's work, but it shows our responsibility. We must believe in him so that we will not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Have you been born again? <laughs> Someone might say, well, how, how, how do I know if I've been born again? Do you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Then you have been born again. That being born again is what enabled you to believe. It changed that old nature which was corrupt and unwilling to believe to one that would believe. We have been given a new heart that's able to respond to the gospel. Our eyes have been opened so that we can see the beauty and the truth of the gospel. We are no longer like those who are foolish and see no power in the word of God, but we understand that it is powerful. So have you been born again? Just ask yourself, do I believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I believe not just with my head, but I've believed with my heart in such a way that my life is beginning to change into the image of Christ? Do you give glory to God for how he saves? One thing that is so essential about this is it takes all it takes all credit for our salvation away from us and gives it totally, 100% to God. Amen. And so that means it can never be taken away from us, right? <laughs> we never did anything to deserve it. We never did anything to keep it. He's the one who keeps it for us. He's the one who deserves all the credit and honor for, uh, to God. Number three, last thing we'll talk about today, I think. Do you pray for salvation for others as though God can do something? How many of you have met people, you shared the gospel, and they say, it's good for you, but I'm not having any of that. It's basically they're saying, it's not my will to do that, to believe that. So how do we change a person's will? Well, we're supposed to present the gospel and we are supposed to persuade somewhat, right? We are supposed to be persuasive in our presentation of the gospel. But we know that if we're doing it right, when we are persuading, it's actually the Holy Spirit in us persuading. It's the Holy Spirit who turns that unwilling heart into one that is willing and sees the beauty of God and the beauty of having a relationship with him. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When a person receives Christ, the old has gone away. The new heart has come. And the rest of our life is growing that heart, right? <laughs> it still has tendencies sometimes to go back to its old ways. But it never loses that knit, knitted relationship that we have with Christ. And it's always on the way upward toward Christ. And so how do you pray, pray for salvation for your family? How do you pray them? What words do you use? I asked a pastor friend this one time who believed differently than me about this. I said, well, how do you pray for my son then? Because this gets personal with me. How are you going to pray for my son if you don't believe the Holy Spirit can do something? And he said, well, and he started praying, and he prayed exactly like I would. God softened his heart. God opened his eyes. God give him a new heart. Help him to understand. My son understands the gospel. He just doesn't have it here. He knows it better than you guys. He just doesn't know it here. So it gets very personal. When you pray for someone, if you don't believe God can do something to break their will, then why are you praying to God? If a person's will is so sacred that God cannot somehow change that will, then why ask God to do anything? He can't do it. Free will, right? Our will is not free. Not since the fall, anyway. Since the fall, those who are not Christians, they are enslaved to sin. Romans chapter 6. They are enslaved to sin. That is not freedom. The only freedom they have is to sin, and they sin all the time. The freedom that we have in Christ is the freedom to do good. We have the freedom to love God. We don't have total freedom as Christians. We don't have the freedom to sin. We don't have the freedom to wreck someone's life or wreck someone's marriage. We are slaves of righteousness, Romans chapter 6. There's only two options. You're a slave to sin, you're a slave to righteousness. And it's the new birth that crosses us from that dividing line one to the other. And it's a sovereign act of God. And our response is to believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank so much for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. And it really is clear. It's just that we miss it sometimes because it's so different than what we expect. It's so different than what, how we would do it if we were doing it. If we were doing it, we would want to try to grab some of that honor and glory for ourselves. But you're not that way. Your intent from the very beginning of the time throughout all this thing is that you would be glorified in saving a people for yourself. And so you not only make salvation available to those who hear it, but you actually reach down and save people 
according to your sovereign will. And I thank you for that. I wouldn't have the wisdom to do that, but you do have the wisdom to do that. And it's by grace, not by merit, by grace. So we pray today that you would do a work in our heart. Help us to understand this more fully. Help us to pray for people as Paul prayed for people when he said, my heart's desire is that they might be saved. God, help us to be a people of prayer who will get down on our knees and sob for people and cry for them and seek that you would move in their life the same way that you moved in our life. We have new hearts because we're believers, but you still have a work to do in our heart until we're conformed to the image of Christ. Do that work today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.